Are you a leader in customer success, pre-sales, professional services, support? Do you work behind the scenes and roll up your sleeves to make sure that customers are happy? Renew. Then this is for you. Welcome to the GSD Podcast. Welcome to the GSD Podcast. Getting it done. Services, success, and software. We'll talk with the pros that have been in the trenches, getting service teams off the ground, launching new types of groups to service customers, or running agencies that don't have a product attached to it. For the pros, by the pros. This is the GSD Podcast, and this is your host, Jeff Kushmerick. Hey there, it's Jeff from the GSD podcast, and I'm going to consider this one um, a S is for software, um, although we definitely do get into some services uh, stuff or things as well. Pardon my bad English there. Um, so on, on the podcast is, uh, is Shmoo Bolin, who he was introduced to me as a friend of a friend who is just super passionate about UX and just essentially building the right thing for the for the customer. Uh, you started back at Bose, uh, you know, almost 20 years ago, and uh, really dove deep into human factors and all of the fun stuff to measure emotional engagement. That's actually the name of this course at uh, at Bentley. He's now an instructor at the User Experience Center at Bentley. Also, has been part of a company called ACL Worldwide, with a ton of enterprise customers, and they're helping define user experience for enterprise customers there. So. You know, we try to to pertain uh, the conversation or or harness it into to the services realm, and the way we kind of did that was focusing on the customer journey. And you know, if we have a bad feature set, a bad onboarding experience, how that pertains to services. As we know, services covers a lot of things these days, and one of them is a lot of SaaS companies are using the professional services team as the onboarding and implementation team. So that was my sort of framework uh, in my mindset as we went into this one. I hope you find it enjoyable, and uh, I will talk to you soon. So here we go. We're 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 rolling, <laughs> um, and it, it's it's uh, it's great to meet you, Shmuel, and and and. One thing that I really love is that we didn't work together. I've talked with so many mm-hmm. people that we just have this sort of shared experience. And some people are like, oh, my God, another Indeca story or something like that. But uh, mm-hmm. um, we were connected from a mutual friend um, who I considered, you know, kind of kind of really deep into UX. Um, but right before we were about to start chatting, she was like, you know what? I'm just not feeling it anymore. And so she's like, but I've got the guy for you and um, <laughs> and so um and i definitely checked out your background and said this would be amazing um so you know for you and, and for some of the people listening um for the first you know 10 or so episodes i was specifically focusing on you know services and the customer journey and onboarding and implementation but the more and more people that i talked to a lot of those are tied to the product and specifically mm-hmm. the user experience. Um, and so mm-hmm. when I asked when you wanted to chat about it and you said, 
UX and enterprise software, I was like, sold. Um, so this is a, a hot topic. So I'd love for you to sort of tell everybody what your background is. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, then, and then we can dive in and start talking about, uh, you know, the good and the bad of enterprise software and user experience. Sure. Okay. So I came out of college in 87, I guess, and had a head full of liberal arts education <laughs> and really didn't, you know, there really isn't anything constructive, I think, that you can do for a living with that. Um, I agree. So I'm I, a political science major. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I got involved in a number of different kind of entrepreneurial um, adventures with different friends. And I began to publish my own um, poetry and short stories and, um, and I, I was laying out those books myself, right? Oh, wow. Like cutting and pasting things and taking it to Kinko's and having them, you know, printed and bound. And, um, and I ended up taking all of that, uh, not really knowing what I wanted to do, knowing that I really would like to have some stability and have a, uh, you know, a career within which I could grow and one which, you know, you got to make a living. Person's got to make a living. But I didn't really want to spend a whole lot of time struggling to make a living. I'd like something stable. So I went to a temp agency and asked them, you know, can you get me into a company that does everything? And then I'll look around and figure out mm -hmm. what I want to do from there. And they sent me to Bose, and I got a job at Bose. Oh, nice. Uh, 19, yeah, 1994, just, uh, you know, processing return speakers. While I did that, I began to realize that there was no documentation for the processes that we were doing. Mm -hmm. And in the, in the same way that I had put together these little poetry books, I put together on, on my lunch breaks, I would borrow, um, there were a few people in an office there that used computers to do um, technical writing. Mm -hmm. So I, I asked one of them, could I, could I just use your computer during lunch? And I taught myself how to use a computer and I put together three separate manuals for the three main processes that we were doing, cutting out pictures and sticking them on paper and printing things up. And same thing I did with those little poetry books. And then a position was posted on the board for, um, for an information specialist, something, something like that, information yep. specialist, I can't, can't remember. And I used those three books that I had produced. And I, you know, I went in there and interviewed for that position and got it. And, you know, kind of overnight went from a, an hourly employee with, to a salaried employee with an office with my own computer. With, wow. um, and, I, and I really just, just ran with it from then, I think within a year. So I was a material, a um, information specialist. There's another term that they used for me. Uh, it's escaping me right now. But I made, I was in charge of documentation and that kind of thing. Um, and there were servers, right? Because we had factories oh, yeah. around the world. Those different client servers. Server. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So you got to yep. put stuff on the server, make sure that they're, they got to get to the server. So this is, by this, by this time, it's probably 95, 96. And my manager told me, hey, why don't you go to CompUSA and take an HTML class, see if yep. you can use the web here at Bose. So I went to CompUSA for three nights, and I learned how to write HTML. And I, I came back into the office and I told him, we're going to have to do this. We're going to have to move away from these servers where we store documents. We're going to have to create a, basically an HTML interface to all of that stuff. Because right now, 
we have things stored, but it's really hard for people to find them. They have to learn our own hierarchy. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. So he told me, go ahead, go ahead, spend a little bit of money, set up a server, do whatever you want. And I set up a server. And Bose at the time had an intranet that was created by the engineering team. It had one page with just a few <laughs> links, you know, very, yeah. very basic. And within a year, I had created a whole uh, manufacturing information systems intranet with a, with a web team, one in Japan, one in Canada, one in Ireland, one in Mexico, um, and one somewhere in the U.S. in Michigan. So I, I trained people how to write HTML, and I created this kind of ecosystem where you, it was much easier to find things. And and now these these manufacturing sites had kind of an identity. So the, manu, the manufacturing division really kind of became something else. But still, to me, it was like, okay. It's, but it's just like a layer over those servers again. It can't just be about finding things. It's got to be about more than that. So by, by 1999, um, I had hired Human Factors International to come in. Oh, yeah, I remember and, that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, do, do some training about HFI. Yeah. <laughs> HFI. It's not just about the fact that you have a website that works, right? That's a very engineering-centric approach. Why, why does it work? What does it do? Why does it benefit people? You're going to have to do a lot more work with users. It can't just be, by then I was called the intranet webmaster. That was my job title. Yep. <laughs> and that was like, as much as I enjoyed having a superhero job title, I was like, yeah, but I can't be a webmaster. This has to be for <laughs> people to use. It can't just be a master slave relationship. Yeah. And it was not long after that, early 2000s, I came across a book by Jeff Raskin called The Humane Interface. Mm -hmm. And he, that's a quote from that, which is, the way that you accomplish tasks with a product, what you do and how it responds, that's the interface, okay? And then he has like a part two, which is, as far as the customer is concerned, the interface is the product. Right. They don't care, they don't care about anything that, all the hard work you did that they can't see they don't really care about it. what's the interface. <laughs> yep. So engineering companies to this day, yep. right? Google, you know, you name Microsoft, um, they're very engineering centric and the interface is not really the product to them. The user really has to do invest themselves in figuring out how to use their software. Um, my belief since, you know, the late nineties has been that the dog should wag the tail, right. the tail wagging the dog. Um, to this day, it's, very, very enterprise software is very, very heavily software driven. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's, it should be user driven. The experience should be user driven. So that's a phrase that I, I saw once about six or seven years ago within a marketing context. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen it since. I've kind of adopted it as my own mantra where I work. Yep. We're going to a user driven experience, which means we don't tell people what to do with our solutions. We let people do what they want to do with our solutions. Uh, that's awesome. It, it's funny because you, you would think um, in the world of SaaS that we're in, um, that in, in if you don't like it, you're gone in six to eight months, right? You sign up, don't like it, you know, move on to the next thing. You would think that people are would become more user-driven and use this term and things like that. Um, have you mm -hmm. seen that um, in the SaaS world at all or? You know, I, I, it, obviously the standard is Salesforce, right? <laughs> so, mm -hmm. yeah. which, which is trying to roll out a new interface and people hate it. 
Um, mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I, it's funny, I, whether I'm at, been helping out a large company or a small company, the UX really just becomes, it's, it's not really, it's not part of the equation until they want to kind of feature it. You know, I, it's the term that just keeps going through my head is that it's like a buffet table at a, at a Chinese restaurant and here's some features and you're mm -hmm. just trying to figure yeah. it out. <laughs> yeah. Or even, you know, the Chinese restaurant has a certain number of things that they can make profitably. So they decide, well, this is what we're going to sell and offer rather than trying to find out from people, what kind of things would you be interested in? What would make you come back? What would make you tell your friends about it? It's just, well, we can get all this stuff cheap and all we got to do is have cut up vegetables and three different kinds of cut up meat and then a bunch of different sauces. We can just throw it together and people will eat it. They might not come back for a long time, but that doesn't matter. We'll just get lots and lots of people to come in because we'll offer fairly low price. And now what you're talking, Jeff, is you're talking commodity. So I think many, many enterprise software companies find themselves in that commodity realm where there's low margins and low loyalty, mm -hmm. and they just keep churning through new, you know, onboard, 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 lose people. But as long as they keep them for a certain amount of time, you know, then that's fine. And they, they will make some effort. You know, there's SAP is, is another culprit, I guess I would say. I met, <laughs> I met the director of usability uh, for SAP back in um, – probably around 2000, early 2001, 2002, when, when Bose was, was using SAP very heavily. I remember asking him, what do you, what do you guys even do? Like, what, have it, what does your group even do? I don't see any evidence of anything in the software. And he had to admit that, um, you know, the engineering team has just such a heavy voice that um, he, him and his team really struggled to make a difference. But they viewed themselves, I think, as... Um, you know, the plucky underdogs who have a belief, they, they, have, a, they have commitment to a vision, and they're going to keep, you know, hitting it until they get to execute on that vision. And to a certain extent, you know, that's a classic UX standpoint. Mm -hmm. You're, you know, you have a belief, and you're going to try to convince people, and you're going to, so I, and I myself, you know, fell into that category for many years. But over the last, you know, five years, the company I'm at now, yeah. um, you know, various, you know, various things came into play where I was able to establish myself with a tremendous amount of credibility. I was able to do something. Somebody at Bose taught me once, which was compromise where necessary to preserve a working relationship. Okay. Absolutely. I, yep. And I, I, and I didn't want to do that for many years, but I began to do that. I took, a, I took a much longer um, point of view, a longer game. And, um, you know, I picked my, I picked my advocates mm -hmm. and I worked strongly with them and I found out who my adversaries were and I made a special effort to go to them and understand, you know, I, if I can't understand exactly why somebody is so adversarial to UX, I need to really understand their position as well as they do mm -hmm. in order for me to begin working with them. I had to go and do that. And I did that. And um, were there any common trends um, in, you know, I, I was in a bunch of product roles and I've certainly worked with very strong dev teams where a dev created the product and, and, you know, they'll, you give them some, <laughs> the UX team would give them some, some designs and then, you know, come back without rounded corners and everybody, you know, baby seals died and everything else like that. So were there, was it like difficulty or was it just like, we don't want to deal with this or there are common themes in that or. 
Yeah, it was just like you say, right? The engineering team believed that, or the dev, the, you know, the development teams would believe that. Well, you know, we can do an interface. It's just code. You know, let's put something on top of what we're building, the business rules that we're building, um, you know, the transactional yep. task flows that we're building. Let's just throw something on top of it. We'll have somebody look at it later. Um, all best intentions there, but you know, usually typically unwilling to make any significant changes. So where you run into a situation like that, um, what I would typically do is a heuristic analysis where I'll assess the, the issues, identify the issues, and assess them for frequency and severity, and then add up those two scores, you score them, and then you end up with a list of high, me high medium and low issues. Uh, and then you then you're able to show product management. Look, there is a problem with this task flow. The problem is severe. It's preventing people from completing the main task flow. It needs to be fixed as soon as possible. Here's how you should fix it. Here's a design that you should use to fix it. And here and here's how the design tested. And now right. look, I took the score from this to this. So when I when I invested in doing that, um, I built up some credibility. You know, then I didn't really have to do that again and again. Um, but that was kind of the trend is that yeah. something's already in existence and you're brought in, you know, later on. You have to, it takes a long time to get brought in at the very beginning um, and teach, teach people, no, 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 the user is the dog and right. we're, we're the tail. Yeah, it's, it's so funny. And then by the time, just what I've seen, by the time it comes in that you're brought in, you know, you have to break down a lot of concrete to make things right again. It's just so built up. Very hard. It's yeah. very hard. So the, the thing that I've done lately that's been really effective, and when I say lately, I mean like the last 18 months, yep. is there's a guy called Jeff Soro who runs a company called Measuring, Measuring You. Okay. Um, and he has, he has uncovered a strong correlation between um, system usability scale metrics and improved revenue mm. and net promoter score and improved revenue. Those are the, so, you're speaking all the SAS, VC, board yeah. members, you know, that's, that's the terms that gets them excited right there. Yeah. So what I did was I took those two, I, and I'm, where I work, I've, you know, I've been using those metrics for years. So people at where I work understand those metrics. Uh, being able to show that there's a strong correlation with improved revenue, that opened a lot of eyes. And then I created a matrix where I plot both of those scores on the X and the Y axis. And now you have a quadrant, which I call the world-class quadrant, <laughs> where if your SUS score is above a certain point and your NPS score is above a certain point, then you're in that quadrant. Your product is in that quadrant. So I can measure a current, you know, a current user interface, show a product manager, you are not in that quadrant, you are not positioned yep. for improved revenue. Here's the design changes I recommend. I've already mocked them up. I've already tested them. This is where I predict you'll be if you, if you agree to make these changes. Uh, that's pretty so powerful. That, yeah. that has been huge. And I'm that sure that you could probably also draw churn and uh, uh, renew, you know, renewing metrics into that higher quadrant as well too and be able to be like, um, if your NPS is low, people aren't going to sign up. They're going to go for the next, the, the next one. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is actually probably yeah, a pretty absolutely. good time to segue what we talked about. Um, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of people that listen that, you know, they're working in 
you know, the, the, the customer has signed up and now we're trying to get them live, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, especially in enterprise software, especially in SaaS these days, you know, sales team goes out, you know, and they sign up, you know, let's say two, 3,000 users for your product. And, you know, we're trying to get them live in a certain time frame. And I've had this perspective for a little bit that if product in UX was perhaps a little easier, we didn't, we won't have to do as much onboarding and training and that um, it could be a lot more self-service and then costs would go down for trying to get a customer alive. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so I'm curious when you're, how this kind of factors into UX in the whole sort of new customer, new customer adoption, how easy it is to use and understand a product um, and what are the measures? It sounds, I think we touched on about a little bit with that quadrant that you were talking about, but um, I just want to sort of get some perspectives from you um, sort of in this world that we're living in with, you know, it's very easy to sign up and buy software um, with a credit card and get going, but how do we make sure that the users can adopt the software successfully instead of just saying like, ah, screw it, this, is, this isn't mm -hmm. worth the hassle? Yeah, so I think that that's where you would, you would probably look at some emotional engagement type metrics would be interesting and possibly even uh, measuring some psychophysiometrics. Mm. So one of the things that I really enjoy is measuring emotion. And I teach a uh, course in, in Bentley University's User Experience Center certificate program mm -hmm. where we, we actually get into that. And there are, two, uh, there are two things that you need to measure if you're looking at emotion. One is called arousal and, that, and one is valence. So arousal is, could be positive or negative depending on the valence. But that means you're, you're trying to figure something out or you're experiencing something new um, like you're onboarding What's the valence? Is it positive? Is it negative? So there are, there are tools like eye tracking, which will show you things like where a user is looking and where they're fixating. And eye tracking, to, to, to an eye tracker, engagement and confusion look the same. So, uh, yeah. So I like to I add didn't realize in, that because we, we were always looking at like crazy egg for so long. <laughs> trying to yeah. figure it out. <laughs> yeah, it looks the same, right? A fixation, a fixation could be positive or negative. They could be enjoying it or they could be trying to figure it out and getting more and more frustrated. So when you, when you begin to measure um, valence, arousal and valence, um, which can be done for just a few hundred bucks, um, little sensors that go around your fingers, then, then you're starting to see what, is, what are the emotions caused by the first few seconds of the experience, the first, you know, three to 10 seconds, maybe, which are going to bias the rest of the experience. And they're going to bias the rest of the experience in a number of different ways. You know, first of all, we, as humans, right, I think we're, we're heavily designed for survival. So the first, the first half second or second of a new experience, you're, you're typically stressed out. You're kind of aroused. You're on alert. You're trying to figure out, am I in danger or not? You go into a cocktail party, you go into a business right. meeting, you get on an airplane, you get in an elevator, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so the more we can do as designers to facilitate somebody getting through that initial phase safely, the better off we are. So what I do is I, look, I, I design things with very, very low visual complexity and very low textual complexity or you know if you want to flip it around it would be called perceptual fluency 
I use regular shapes. Yep. I'll format text so that it's in a regular shape rather than a jagged shape. I'll use simple words. I'll use colors that are not too high or not too low in terms of chroma values. Um, those provide high perceptual fluency, which leads to high processing fluency because okay. you're able to use your cognitive resources to figure out what I'm supposed to do next. Absolutely. So you're not having to use up too many cycles of your brain to figure out what's going on, I think is what you're saying. Yeah, right? yeah. exactly. I can get right into the task itself rather than like, you know, you take a chair, right? You look at a chair. This is Don Norman's thing, a chair or doorknob. They're designed so that you know how to use them. When you buy something that's not designed like that, you've got to figure out how to use it. You're like, I don't want to figure out how to use it. I want to use my energy to use it. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's like me at Ikea. <laughs> yeah. Ikea is a great example. Like you get people get annoyed, really annoyed by a, a, a company, a product, a service that they've got to invest a lot in. It's, it's really, I, you know, I think that that inflection point is just a few seconds of that initial experience before you bias negatively or positively. That's amazing. Wow. That's, that's some fascinating stuff. How, how is that? Is that it must be pulling people into a lab and hooking them up? Is, is that are there? There's no browser tools or anything to be able to get those analytics, correct? The arousal and the valent? Well, there is, there is remote eye tracking, right? You can do that, I think, through through the, the camera on, on an iPhone. Oh, okay. Uh, but yeah, it, yeah, there is. Yeah, there's a company. I just learned that, actually. But yeah, if you're going to do psychophysiometrics, it's, it's high touch. You got to get people either to come in or you go to where they are. So, and, and you're, you're actually giving me a nice segue there into the way, sure. the way I tend to handle <laughs> onboarding with, with enterprise software is, you know, I will go with our marketing, our market facing teams. I will figure out who are our big customers, um, approach them about participating in a design partner program mm -hmm. where I get access to their users. And we start that even before any design is done, we start understanding personas. We start understanding the tasks. Um, I'll even start validating, you know, very, very low fidelity wireframes with users. So by the time the product is built, the onboarding is very easy because a good number of users at a good number of our bigger customers will have participated in the design process. So yeah, and that's, the onboard. That just makes all the sense in the world. And it just drives me absolutely insane when that doesn't happen. And it's, as you know, because you're in the, the role of your career, it's it's kind of brought in last minute. Okay, how do we make this look a little better, right? And that's just such the... If, if you, for companies doing it wrong, it's, it's an afterthought. Oh, we'll just bring a contractor in for 20 hours to make this look pretty or something like that. And versus yeah, like, and, let's and, ground up, let's figure out the best way. Of yes. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, you know, getting over that hump can be really difficult. Um, there are analogies that you can try with people. You can say, well, you know, would you, would you ask somebody to build a house for you and just give them basic requirements? And then say, you just do whatever you need to do. And at the end, I'll come all, I'll just hire a painter. Oh my God. This come is so funny that it. you said this. And, and this sounds like a terrible, obnoxious thing that I'm about to say, but like, I literally published a blog post last week and it was around some of this. And I said, basically, Hey, my dad was a plumber. Right. And if you just hired him and the carpenter and the electricians and the painters to all show up on a concrete slab one day, do you, do you, do you think you're going to get 
the response, you know? So, <laughs> so uh, it, it's, it's exactly, it's a very easy metaphor for yeah. people to understand that like, you know, your version of two bedrooms and a one bath is going to look much different if you don't have a plan in front um, for what you yeah. want. Yeah. Yeah. And it helps. It's a help to do that. Um, it doesn't always, you know, it, it doesn't always have like a, a lasting effect. So you have to have some endurance, right? If you're going to be an enterprise UX designer, you have to have some endurance. Um, a good example is with color. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, um, I'll get into conversations with people about color uh, and, and design as versus art. You know, they will confuse design with art, where art is, uh, the creator of the art is expressing how they feel internally. Design mm -hmm. is, is not really doing that. It's, it's trying to accomplish something. It's trying to impart meaning to somebody so that they can then take that meaning and, and act on it. Um, and when it comes to color, you know, we understand fairly well um, what kind of colors people can see easily, what kind of colors have a, have a kind of semantic, you know, meaning to them, um, and, and what kind of colors are going to work well when it comes to just human perception. Those aren't always the colors people sort of like to see, right? So I'll get, I'll get um, you know, complaints from a customer uh, and praise from a customer about use of color and the product management teams will only hear the complaints and they'll say, well, you know, we need, we need different colors, for example, because uh, we got complaints. And even though I can show them, well, we got compliments as well. What that tells you is it's a battle you really can't get into. You have to choose colors for reasons other than personal preference. So what I did actually over the last month was I, I created a color palette. So I used, um, I used, we have a semantic palette now, which is, um, you know, bad, good, <laughs> warning and neutral yep. and there are those are standard colors and there are six brightnesses of each you know when you change the brightness um, you'll start with a standard color and then you'll you'll decrease the brightness by 25 percent and then 50 yep. percent and then or you'll increase it by 25 percent 50 percent 75 percent so now I've given you um, it's not just four colors it's 24 colors you can choose you know you can choose the intensity to of each color yeah 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 yeah. And then we have um, then we have a uh, another set of color palettes based on our brand because our marketing team has invested a lot of money figuring out what what attributes we would like to portray. We don't want to be a commodity, mm -hmm. right, Jeff? We want to be a premium brand. So premium brands have have qualities associated with them, and marketing teams will will come along and tell you uh, what kind of imagery and you know what kind of colors should be used so you take the two main colors and again create those six versions of that of those colors um, and then um, you know sort of standardize all of those and and even within that when I go back to people product management and tell them here's a here's a whole variety of colors that we're going to be able to use now you know I'll, I'll be asked again, you know, are those, are those not too bright? Shouldn't we, you know, for people that are using our software all day long, shouldn't we have, are those colors not too bright? So to go back and do research into hue and to chroma, oh, yeah. uh, you know, but to, to understand as long as you as a designer are not making decisions based on your personal preference, but you're doing it based on research so, and it's understanding. So funny. It's so funny that you said that I was working on a project and the the ux was actually really well done it was a project you know where my team was the dev you know professional services engagement you know customer hired uh my team to do the development and and then another team to do the ux and the ux was really good 
but when it came time to implement the colors, um, the designer was putting a lot of their creative license onto it and it just was off. And that's kind of how it was explained to me, which was that yeah. um, it wasn't matching sort of what the UX was trying to do. It was more of like what that creatives person mood was that day. And, um, right. and, and, and when they came back, when, I, when we said, this just seems off, we're not really quite sure. They went back and took a look at it. When I talked to the sort of the creative director, um after they made these changes i'm like wow that was pretty fast and we were in I, I think it was somewhat along the lines of what you were saying which was there was a little bit too much of the personal personality of the designer um and in a lot less of the what we're trying to do as a product here yeah yeah absolutely and you know we can human beings can detect, you know, millions and millions of, of colors. There are really only, you know, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, but obviously there are, when you adjust hue and, and shade and chroma, you get millions of variations and they, you know, they should relate to each other, right? You should have a color palette of different colors that are in the same, you know, sort of range, same color family. And there are color palette generators that are out there um, that people can use when, when that's not done or when you use colors that are too garish, right? The chroma is too high yeah. um, or, or too muted. Then those communicate emotional things that we're not always ready for. Yep, yep. Absolutely. So a designer, like you're saying, a designer who's more on the art side of things is going to use color to express themselves. Yeah, and which, other, just, which other <laughs> other people will it, pick up on that, and they might not share those. I'm not here for that. I'm here to do my taxes. You know, I'm not here. <laughs> so I'm not funny. here for anything else. So absolutely, this is. So let me ask you this then. Um, since this obviously is very thoughtful and and, and you know uh, research kind of driven work, how do you balance that against you know the classic? deadline driven approaches from enterprise software. So we, we have a design system that we use. So a lot of the research into color and into, you know, various perceptual cognitive issues is kind of already, it's already done. Right. So I'm the, you know, I'm, I'm the design lead for, for the whole company. I've got accountability for every single one of our products across our six main solution missions. Um, and that, and that includes a long-term vision of, sewing it all together into one super capable, you know, ERP for payments experience. Yeah. And you cannot do that successfully um, with a very small team, at least, unless you have a design system. So all of those artifacts are already built. They're already tested. Um, they're already defensible from a research perspective. And, you know, that's what we use. Oh, that's great. And it's funny, as soon as you said that, it reminds me of a, of a large customer that I was working with and they had the whole design system and um, in, in we were brought in for a UX and front end thing and, and we were just told to just map up to the design system and there won't be a problem yeah. with creative yeah. um, or UX, excuse me. And that's exactly what we did. And it, it, it seems like it's a shared language that people of the profession uh -huh. seem to able to kind of map up to. So that was great. It is good, and I think it, it's also easy for development teams to learn enough of that language so that you're not, you're not imposing yourself on them. Yep. You're actually, yep. you're actually te teaching them, and I've got development teams, one actually in, in Cape Town, South Africa, that I give a lot of autonomy to because they understand the design system, they know how to use it. Yep. They go ahead and use it. We've got a bit of a time zone thing, you know, and they'll mm -hmm. share with me, okay, take a look at what we've done, please 
please tell us if it's in line with with your vision for the implementation of, of the design system, because you could you could implement the design system in a clumsy way for sure. Um, so that's been amazing. That's that's basically extended the reach of my team without me adding headcount. So that's awesome. No, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, because you, you want to you don't want to put tools in that's going to slow the dev team down and, and things like that. So as long as you give them the oh. the guardrails, um, then then yeah. they're able to produce. That's great. I, listen, I just looked at the time, and I know that we're, we're both. A hit and mute when the kids run by and <laughs> I just did that a uh -huh. second ago. So yeah. just wanted to wrap up with sort of like what's the 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 big thing that you're passionate about that you're working on now, for, you know, for the future. Is it it's obviously you've got the work and you're teaching um are there elements yep. in both of those? Well, I think that the experience that I plan on on designing for our users is um enabling them to almost fuse with the software and use the software to augment their own understanding of what's going on in front of them. And the example I'll use is, is merchant fraud, right? So I support dozens of, well, many dozens of companies um, that, are, that are retailers, either e-commerce or brick and mortar retailers um, that have, it could be, could be 100 or 150 analysts sitting at any given time looking at software that I've designed to try to detect fraud within uh, transactions. Yeah. And I can only take it so far before there's too much variety in the way they think about fraud. So they've still got to do some work to take the information I've presented them with, even though it's presented in a way that they understand and it's been tailored and so forth, they've still got to process it further. I want to give them tools. I want to give them tools so that each individual analyst can say, I'm detecting a trend. I'm detecting that when these three or four characteristics are present within a transaction, that I believe it's this kind of fraud. I want to let them write a rule on the fly so that whenever a transaction comes in, that analysis that they would normally do manually each time, that's already happened because they've told the transaction to do that, and it's, they've been able to create a flag, a visual flag, that the, they see it and, and in, you know, probably 200 milliseconds, they already know what to do next, instead of having to take five or 10 seconds and, and do that process each and every time. So that's what I'm really, that to me, that's, that's a user-driven experience. And that's just yeah. one example of many that I have rattling around in my brain, um, you know, that, that I plan to implement um, you know, within the next few years. Uh, and then you'll have to, I, I think it sounds to me like the logical step after that is these types of tasks that are, you know, able to be picked out by AI instead of a person. Um, and then, you know, those types of things. So, but then yeah. being able to, you know, still bubble up that information to the next, to the next level higher. So, uh, yeah, these, sure. these, I don't, we can go on forever, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but that, that sounds fascinating. Well, listen, um, Thanks so much. Um, we I, I don't get enough UX people on here. And the last time we did it was really in the context of like being hired to do UX for a customer uh, project. So this was a really great um, sort of heuristic or overall look at sort of the design process, which I learned a ton. Um, so I'll say we can hang on for a minute after this, but thanks so much for uh, for joining and um, looking forward to to putting the links out there and getting some of the feedback. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I would love to talk about this stuff. Yeah, I know it's that's and that's what our friend said. Like you guys could chat for hours about this stuff. So uh, <laughs> right, it was, it was exactly. Great. So thanks a ton, and um, okay. you know, hang on for a quick second. Sure.